WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Tia Graham. And I'm Nick Austin. The Metro, your source for daily news, arts, and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. Tia, they tell me today is Valentine's Day. That's what they say. I'm going to believe it because they just keep (laughs) telling me. So what are we going to do on the show in honor of it? As technology advances, so does the way we build and maintain relationships. But what can we learn about creating strong connections in the age of social media and online dating? We'll speak with the director of a research lab focused on these questions to learn more about her research. And, you know, bringing up Valentine's Day, which is today. What are your plans for Valentine's Day? Do you have any rituals or special traditions with your loved ones or even your platonic friendships? You can give us a call. Let us know. 313 577-1019. It is 313-577-1019. Share your Valentine's Day plans with us on the Metro. Now, today is Valentine's Day, of course, and that could mean a few things for you. It may mean dinner and a movie, or maybe it's a romantic stroll along the Detroit Riverwalk. No matter what you decide, Valentine's Day has been constructed for romantic partners. But it's not just Valentine's Day. Much of our lives in America today are centered around finding and keeping romantic partners. But What about the folks who spend so much time with their friends or platonic friendships? What does friendship mean to us in our lives? Raina Cohen is a producer and editor for NPR's Embedded Podcast and the author of the new book, The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Raina Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. So happy to be here on Valentine's Day. Yes, I'm wearing my pink sweater as well, so I am festive right now. Great. So when we think about uh, the book and, 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 of course, the term friendship, what do you define friendship as in the book? I mean, you know, friendship now is such a capacious term that I think it can mean something that's uh, not very close for a lot of people. But I think friendship is fundamentally a relationship that is chosen and it is mutually chosen. So two or more people are deciding to be bound together in a way that you don't get to choose your siblings and your parents and so on. Um, And it's rooted around trying to support each other, being, you know, having an affinity for one another. And it really can run the gamut from people that you see every few months, but have a lot of affection for, to people who, you know, you see every day and you're in touch with about the intricacies and the mundane aspects of your life. So there's there's a lot of flexibility within friendship, but I think always there is the sense of choice and affection. Mm. And going through the book and just going through some of the themes, there was a friend in the book that you call M, who you met after moving into a new city, and you describe how that friendship expanded your ideas on what friendship could be. Now, how did that uh, work for you, and what were some of the things that you learned about friendship? So Em and I, when we met in D.C. where I live, uh, discovered that we lived a five-minute walk from each other. So it became really easy for us to be integrated into each other's lives. I, I, mean, I could just walk to her house on the way to the metro uh, and during my morning commute, and I would stop by for you know 20 minutes to have oatmeal and chat about our lives. And you know, we would we ended up making each other plus ones to parties, to you know, including at our offices. Just the the people who knew us individually ended up knowing us both almost as a unit. And that really went beyond what I was told friendship could be, that, 
you know, friend, friends are really like supposed to be the supporting cast and not a main character in your life. And, and was certainly a main character in my life and made me wonder, you know, why is there not really a term to talk about a friendship of this nature, which felt to the two of us much more like it was approaching partnership than even what best friend, um, if that's sort of peak friendship, that best friend wasn't really cutting it. And I, excuse me, I love that so much. I have a, a similar relationship with my close friend, and I often think that there's not a term uh, for what we have because it's it's, a, it's further than best friends. And then I often think about some of my guy friends, my male friends, and I think about who are they uh, going to, to talk to about their relationship or whatever it may be. And in particular, American men have very few fr- uh, f- uh, 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 friends. Nick Austin, I, we were talking about this a little bit earlier about men and, and friendships and companionship with men. And you talked a little bit about, you know, just like, you know, men just kind of ask for what they want. Well, I'll say there have been a lot of studies on male friendship. And I'm sure you know also, Raina, how uh, it's declining right now in America. And there are some struggles men are taking as a result of it. So much is heaped on their romantic partners, maybe their wives, to fulfill all these roles. With uh, American men saying they have a lot, or I'm sorry, few friends, uh, have you done any looking at that? And do you know, have any understanding on why that is right now? Uh, I mean, it is definitely the case that that, uh, the decline that all Americans are experiencing in friendship or, or have experienced over the last few decades has really hit men hardest. And you know, for for one thing, I guess to think about how how boys are are socialized um, to not be particularly emotionally open, um, and that when they are allowed to to cry or be emotional in some way, um, it would it would be in the context of a romantic relationship. I mean, one person who I follow in the book is a straight man who grew up in a conservative religious environment, and he remains in a religious environment. He's a youth pastor, and you know he. Um, grew up like not knowing that you could be close to other men. And in fact, it was as he became very close to somebody he now considers as close as a brother, he had questions around his sexuality because he was like, well, is it possible that I could want to hug my friend? Is it like, does it mean that I'm gay if I miss my friend because I haven't seen him in so long? And, you know, if the answer was yes, that would be perfect. You know, certainly my book would be perfectly fine, but I, but um, it's a testament to how little latitude a lot of straight men feel to show any kind of closeness to other men. And what, you know, ended up happening in this situation where this guy, Nick, talked to his friend Art about like, maybe I'm gay because I miss you and I want to hug you. His, his friend was like, that's just emotional intimacy. Like that's just, you know, wanting to like caring about somebody. And the problem was that Nick, the straight man had never experienced that outside the context of a romantic relationship. So I think his, you know, his experience is, is quite, you know, um, representative of what a lot of men feel and, they, you know, don't know how to get close to other men, might be afraid of being perceived as gay and have some kind of homophobia that they may or may not recognize, and then end up doing um, what one author has called emotional gold digging, where they rely on their female partners to provide their emotional needs rather than turning to other, you know, male friends in their lives. Yeah, Raina, I'm glad you brought up that story, because first of all, I think that's true, and it's not fair to your romantic partner, but also in that story, as I recall from the book, there were actual ramifications that uh, this male in a conservative environment felt when people saw him or he was trying to date while uh, having this relationship with someone else. Can you give us a little bit more insight in what you found there and what the actual ramifications were for them making that decision? 
Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, it's, it's quite a devastating story in a lot of ways. So these, to sort of step back a moment, these two men, Nick and Art, who are now around 30, they met in college, uh, as a Christian college, studying to be youth pastors. And they both belong to conservative Christian denominations. And one thing that that Art realized over time is that he's gay. And the way that he decided to reconcile his reading of the Bible and his sexuality was to become celibate. And his friend Nick decided that he was going to live life alongside Art so that Art didn't have to be alone um, uh, because he was he was celibate. And so these men have lived together and the you know evangelical internet caught wind of this, and and eventually the denomination of art, this you know gay um, youth pastor, and people could not seem to wrap their minds around the idea that you could have two men who are committed to each other, especially when you have this kind of cross sexuality relationship, and that it wasn't as like one of these you know blogs that a backdoor to a homosexual marriage. Um, and Art ended up facing, ended up having to resign from his job. Uh, he no longer works as a youth pastor. Um, he had some terrible things said about him. Uh, Nick also had people contacting his church trying to get him reprimanded. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's just like no, it's sort of hard for people to believe that men especially can be so close, or at least, you know, if one person in the pair is straight and that there's not something sexual at play and in this this sort of conservative environment where um you know any kind of like queerness is is not okay um they faced real like concrete ramifications that were you know had to do with their jobs and is also extremely emotionally painful um to have had to go through this yeah we're chatting with Raina cohen a producer and editor for npr's embedded podcast and the author of the new book the other significant others reimagining life with friendship at the center and we're just going to continue the conversation and, and if you could just con- briefly touch on the historical factors that play into relationship forming habits you talked a little bit about that uh, in the book the history of it uh, uh, whether it was exclusion you couldn't get married or whatnot based on your color or whatever it may have been can you get into that a little bit yeah, I mean, you know, there's like t- tons of history here, which I think um, helps us understand how how odd our current moment is, where friendship is this relationship that is kind of peripheral. And there's so much emphasis on n- nuclear family and on marriage. And, uh, you know, marriage used to be a much more pragmatic institution. So people didn't expect to get their, you know, necessarily even love within marriage. It was you know, like you're trading uh, uh, money and resources and then, you know, forging family ties. And now there is so many expectations of marriage that it, you know, I kind of joke that it's a little bit like a, a man spreader on a subway, like marriage is taking up so much space that there's no room for friendship left. But you know, to what you're alluding to in terms of people who have been excluded from marriage historically, I mean, those have been the groups that have done so much innovative uh, kind of work on where you find connection. So whether it is enslaved black people who were not allowed to get married and had to form, um, you know, what are called like fictive kin, like they for- form families outside the law mm-hmm. and also, um, you know, not necessarily across blood ties or queer people who have formed chosen families because they were often rejected by their families of origin. I mean, there's, there's a sort of vast precedent um, for people really turning to their friends and not just biological or marital ties, as we, you know, I guess the mainstream now thinks that that's kind of the way to to run your life. 
I don't know, Raina, when your knees get aching on you after years of sports, sometimes you need a little extra space on the subway. I apologize in advance. As we're speaking to Raina Cohen, producer and editor of NPR's Embedded Podcast. Raina, you're also, as we discussed this book, The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. We've been highlighting a lot of the couples and relationships, unique relationships you've spoken about. Was there any through line that you noticed through all of these stories or takeaways that you gleaned and speak? with folks that you thought was something that you were a little surprised about that people can learn from it? I think there's an astonishing degree of vulnerability and communication skills that these people have um, in these sorts of friendships. So, you know, um, just to make sure that that I'm clear about the kind of friendships that that people have here, these are really like life partnerships. Um, These are friends who own homes together, some are raising kids together, some are, you know, they take care of each other when one has cancer or growing old. And uh, they have no roadmap for how to do that. I mean, there is a roadmap and there are legal, there's illegal infrastructure for marriage. Um, but because people in these friendships don't have those templates, they really have to negotiate everything themselves. So, you know, like the two men that I was talking about, Nick and Art, they had some really rocky stretches because there were periods where like Nick would not pay much attention to the friendship because he had a romantic relationship. And that was sort of the, the normal thing that you're supposed to do. You don't pay as much attention to a friendship. And um, I, so what I have seen again and again is, uh, you know, these pairs of people are sometimes like trios really trying to, you know, having to articulate and negotiate what the relationship is going to look like for them without the kind of security of relying on, a template that might make things easier or make conversation less awkward or difficult. And it's, um, you know, it it, it takes a lot of courage to do that. So when we are thinking about, of course, picking a, a person to be a platonic friend with or a life partner with, I, I often have this conversation about my longtime friend. Where we have conversations just like the ones that are, are presented in your book. Where we just talk about different ways that we can stay connected to one another in a very significant way. So when we think about people out there looking for friends, what should they do more of when they're uh, looking for people? And, and, and many people want friends, but they don't know where to start. So where should they start? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the where to start with friends um, is, you know, you like go go to places where people are are doing things that maybe you're interested in too. You know, I um, uh, last year or so started doing swing dance, and mm-hmm. like I was immediately thrust into this community where I have gotten to know all sorts of people, and 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 in different you know different degrees. Uh, you know, I would say what I hear for people from people is less the question of like how do you meet someone, but more how do you move from like an acquaintance or um, to a friend, or how do you move from a friend to like a very close friend? It's this sort of escalation that people really struggle with, and um, I think it goes back to your previous question about like what is what is distinct about the platonic partners who I write about, and it's like their willingness to have kind of uncomfortable, unusual conversations about you know what do we want to be to each other and. I, I think um, being forward sometimes about like I, I'm really you know I would I tell people like I have a friend crush on you or I'm I, or like I I just find that sometimes being really explicit um, people are you know you, you're able to um, figure out like ways to be closer a lot faster and people usually respond well um, to that uh, and I, you know I think one maybe concrete thing is to think about like. What are the activities um, that you might do for a romantic partner? Like, you know, pick someone up from the airport or bring them as a plus one to a party and think about like, 
could you bring a, have a friend in that role or could you serve that role for a friend? And I think that can create an opportunity to move from maybe a more, um, I don't know, surface level friendship to one where you feel more committed to one another. So, Raina, I love, once again, everything we've been talking about on this segment so far, but I think about that as well with my close friend and just having these conversations. And I always say that I am actively in love with her. She's my best friend, and that's Mm -hmm. what I choose to do every single day when I am uh, in this relationship. But we're talking about friendship. We're talking about significant others. And I just want to have you throw a question out to our callers, 313-577-1019, about friendship. What would you ask the people out there about friendship or or something that they would want to share about friendship? I'm always just interested in what people feel like others don't understand about their friendship or what, what, what would be the thing if people got about their, you know, uh, friendship life that would, that would make things better for them? Because I think, you know, a lot is misunderstood. Raina Cohen is a producer and editor for NPR's Embedded Podcast and the author of the new book, The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro and sharing this conversation and your book. Thank you for having me on and sharing about your lives, too. (laughs) Coming up on the Metro as we continue, what are your plans for Valentine's Day, whether they be with friends or with a significant other? Do you have a ritual that you like to do on this day? Maybe going out to dinner or a movie so you don't have to talk to that other partner. Do you have something more unique maybe you can share with us that we can all learn? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Even if you don't do anything on Valentine's Day, you can tell us why as well. Might be able to work you into the conversation and hear from you as we continue on the Metro here on 1019 WDET. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. Welcome back to the Metro right here on 1019 WDETFM. It is a happy sunny Valentine's Day with a high of 38 degrees today. Tomorrow, though, there'll be rain and snow showers before 9 a.m. It's going to continue raining during the day until 4 p.m. The high for Thursday is 43 degrees, and we could see wind gusts up to 39 miles per hour. So see your loved one now. That's right. A little chilly out there as you're listening to the Metro, your source for daily news, arts and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. But we'll go beyond as well, especially with stories that fit the theme. And with love being in the air right now, we want to turn to StoryCorps to discuss a story that celebrates it, specifically Miranda Dushak and Mima Davis. They were the first lesbian couple to get married in Missouri. They're now divorced, but Mima and Miranda are still work partners, still raising a child together, and are still very much in love. Here's their story. We met at work, right, at our day job, and then we decided to farm together, fell in love, 
got married <laughs> at a spiritual ceremony where we jumped the broom because we couldn't legally be married. And then the second wedding was in 2014. Right. To be legally married. Do you remember this when we had August? Do you remember how I pushed August out? Okay. What do you mean, do I remember that? Yeah. But they didn't know how to fill out the birth certificate. I do paper. remember that. So I was making a fact sheet to leave at the nurse's station about how to register. Um, it's okay. It's okay. You can have some tears. I just felt like we were total freaks, man. We weren't freaks. We were just first. We were just first. And it was really embarrassing for me that we fought so hard to get married and then we got divorced. But, you know, that was part of the rights that we fought for. I know. I was... (laughs) I, I would say that to people, you know. It, and that's all part of the package, right? You get to be married and then you get to get, be divorced. I mean, right. I was like, just like straight people. I can like get divorced. People, I can right. get divorced. It didn't necessarily pan out the way we thought it would be. But we're still in it. We're still farming partners. We're raising a beautiful son. These are gorgeous flowers sitting in front of us. And Mima Davis, I'm going to say right now, I still really love you and of care course. about you. Of course, I love you and care about you too. I mean, that was never in question for me. Both really in our hearts and souls and deep down totally committed to each other and that's why we work through all the real stuff and i see that as the win you look like a flower that was miranda dushak and mima davis the first lesbian couple to get married in missouri of Love. Are you tearing up on me right now, too? I love love, Nick. Well, that's very nice, but there's a lot of electronic equipment here, so. Well, you know, oh, good. I'm a I can't tissues. afford to get it fixed, so, you know, but I just want to bring up this Valentine's Day thing that's happening. You, I'll get the tissues. You go ahead and do that. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Love for Jamboree. Love stories from the LGBTQ community returns to the Planet Ant Theater. It's a series of heartfelt and vlogs created by interviewing LGBTQ people about their experiences with love. Tonight's Valentine's Day is at 8 p.m. and it runs through February 24th. You can find tickets and more information at planetant.com. As we focus on this Valentine's Day here on the Metro, your source for daily news, arts and culture, the latest in Metro Detroit in stories and conversations. That focus also has to turn to social media we find and make relationships in the online space. In fact, with the rise of technology, the way that we interact and form relationships, perhaps no change has been as stark as in the world of social media and dating apps. That's why this Valentine's Day, I spoke with an expert who's done a lot in this area. Professor Stephanie Tong is the director of the Social Media and Relational Technologies Labs at Wayne State University. Their program researches the way technology affects how people make decisions about their relationships. This includes how people use text messages, dating apps, dating sites, and technology generally to maintain and even distance themselves in their relationships. Just ask Professor Tong what she learned about how we use technology to maintain our relationship. So there's a lot of kind of push and pull, right, with existing relationships. A lot of times we can use technology to stay close together and kind of develop that sense of closeness. But technology is also great when you need a sense of autonomy, when you need to have a little bit of distance from your partner. You know, you can 
put that text message away and maybe answer it another time. So it's really good for kind of navigating those tensions in ways that allow for really healthy kinds of communication, both together and apart. And I think we saw a lot of that during COVID, right, when everyone really relied on technology very heavily to stay in touch because we lost kind of that in-person component. And so I think kind of coming back to that has been a big asset, but also a challenge with how we kind of use technology. Some old school folks would think relationships are about all about touch. It's an important part of it, uh, maintaining closeness. Whereas when we transfer to digital devices, you mentioned text messages, online spaces, that can maybe provide a sense of distance. So is there any risk or concern that uh, relationships can grow further apart as we rely more on text messages and online communication as opposed to that in-person connection? Or has it been an adequate way of replacing that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, And I'm still in the old school camp, you know, I still (laughs) believe that that in-person connection, that physical touch is a really important part of relationships and developing intimacy. I don't ever think that's going to be replaced, even though I study technology and I'm a big fan. I'm a big Um, fan too. So you got another one. It's cool. (laughs) Right? Yeah, but I do. I think you're right. You know, technology can offer a sense of replacement when that's not available. And it can also be a way for us to really be even more competent and adaptable in our communication. So, you know, um, if you've ever spent time composing just the right text message um, to say I love you or an apology message or anything that kind of helps build those relational connections. And I like to think of them as capillaries, like you're exercising, right, the closeness in your relationship. You know, technology can be a real advantage for that. You get a chance to kind of take a break and, and really think through what you want to say and how you want to say it. Whereas, you know, if you're in person and in the heat of the moment, that can be really difficult to do. Well, based on, uh, again, the research, the surveys and all that you've done there with the Smart Lab, do you have any recommendations for people who are trying to figure out that balance between in-person versus uh, technological communication, text messages and things? What tips would you have people who are trying to navigate that balance? Yeah, so that's a really good one. Because technology can be, I think, a source of comfort, but can also be a source of conflict, right? So I think the best thing is to start with is talking to your partner, thinking through some of the things that are kind of foundational to your relationship, right? Are there, and if there are problems in your relationship to really address that with open and frank discussion in a, you know, as collected a way as you can do it um, because avoiding that, right? And just using technology as a form of avoidance to just simply not talk about certain topics or kind of talk around them can be a really quick way to damage your relationship. So I think that open, honest communication, no matter what channel, you do it in. Some people can do that more openly through uh, mediated channels. You know, they like the, the distance that technology can provide, but other people really need to have that discussion in person. So I think just talking to your partner um, and really thinking through how you communicate as much as what you say is a really important um, starting place. Yeah, something that we always hear, right? Communication is key. As again, I'm speaking with Professor Stephanie Tong of Wayne State University. And now if you don't do that communication, Dr. Tong, you might end up single and looking for love on Valentine's Day. But that's okay, because you've also done some research in how people work (laughs) to find love using digital devices and online. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work you've done there and what you found? Yeah. And you know what? Hey, if you're single on Valentine's Day, good for you. Yeah, I say. That's right. You're a little cheaper. Um, 
right? <laughs> exactly, you know? Um, but if you are concerned and you are thinking like, I, I might want to reach out and start some romantic connections. Um, I think one of the default places that a lot of us look to, to these days is, you know, mobile and online dating apps, um, you know, Tinder, Bumble, Grindr, these are platforms that a lot of people kind of um, think to first as one of the go-to spots to find romantic connections. Um, and I think there's, again, there's some push-pull there. Um, I think when they first came out on the scene, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was the, the really important place to be, and it was very novel and very exciting, and it still can be. Um, but I think we're also starting to see um, a little bit of what people call dating app fatigue, which is simply that people are getting really tired um, with kind of the overall need to look for and continually update their profile and keep up with the swipes. You know, that can be a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and the added pressure on Valentine's Day is certainly true. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. But, you know, one of the other things I think about with these things, so many apps use algorithms as a way of kind of monetizing the system. And I don't know when I've used apps like that how much I can trust whether it's working for me or it's working for itself just to get more money from me or more money from my friends and things. Do algorithms play any role in what you've learned uh, in looking at these apps and what you've learned in talking to people about who use them? Wow. Well, first, Nick, I want to say that you're a really savvy app user. Most people <laughs> don't even consider the algorithm is running in the background and collecting all this information. So first off, I think you're you're kind of a really savvy user. Um, but the second thing is, yeah, we have done a little bit of research looking at that. Um, the thing that's interesting about algorithms, right, is that we don't think about them unless they don't perform well, mm. um, which is kind of funny, right? I mean, you can think of it with Google search, you know, Google is great. And when it returns all the search results you want, you think it's fantastic. It's only when it returns things that you don't want, where you recognize like, oh, this algorithm isn't performing the way I think. And so I think we can kind of migrate that thinking over to algorithms embedded in platforms like Tinder, where boy, I keep getting these matches and they're just not what I'm looking for, you know, and it can cause people to think, is there something wrong with me or is this the system? You know, who's who's to blame here yeah. <laughs> when we use these technologies? Do you have any ideas or, or tips that you've learned just from your work for folks who are out there looking, whether in the online space or not? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is to remember kind of who you are as an individual as a starting place right so to be in touch with what you think is important in a relationship who you are right just as a person before you start looking for a partner that was professor stephanie tong the director of smart labs at wayne state university where they research the ways technology affects how people make decisions about their relationships Indeed, during our conversation, she also highlighted how for those looking for a partner and making connections in these spaces, it can feel like a very high-pressure environment. Because of this, Professor Tong also recommends for people to remember to take breaks and to also remember this is for you. This is not for any other people. So don't let those outside pressures get into that communicative space when you are ready to look. This is The Metro on 1019 WDET, your source for daily news, arts, and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations, talking about love. When I think of love, Tia, I think of rats because there's so many of them. They breed a lot. They must know a little something about love, right? Doesn't that just come together? You know, in your brain, sure. <laughs> in your brain, sure, I think of plagues. Well, I'll tell you. 
I know Dearborn, there's an issue with rats, but they think they've got a solution to get into it. It seems appropriate on a Valentine's Day to find out more about that solution. And we will do that when we return on the Metro. Listening to the Metro, our new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, art, and culture affecting the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin, joined by our co-host Tia Graham, and we're getting into the stories you need to know on Valentine's Day, including rats. Because about two years ago, three of Michigan cities ranked among the worst for rat infestations. Detroit, Grand Rapids, and Flint were reported to have some of the highest populations of rats per capita in the country. But those cities don't exist in a vacuum, and one neighboring suburb is trying to do more to rid their area of rats. Metro producer Sam Corey sat down with Renault Arsenault, Dearborn's code enforcement manager, to learn more about what Dearborn is doing to keep rats away. Tell me, what is this new program Dearborn has to keep rodents and and rats away, uh, presumably from people's homes? Yeah, so it's actually an expansion of the program that we've already had for basically more than 50 years in the city. We have always offered city services for above-ground vector control problems. That means if you have uh, a problem on your own property, we have city staff. We have the capabilities of giving you advice and helping to eradicate rats on your own personal property. What we're doing now is we're taking that a step above and we're also baiting below ground now and we're hoping to affect the above ground rat population by going below ground to also fight rats below ground. Basically, we're baiting 460 sewers and we're basically putting, you know, rat rodent aside into the sewers and we're ho- we're targeting areas of the city where we're receiving the most amount of complaints. Uh, Orkin is going to do some data analysis for us and provide us with kind of heat maps as to where they're seeing the most activity via their bait being eaten the most. Mm-hmm. Rats are a really big problem uh, in Michigan, definitely in Southeast Michigan. Um, I'm curious what kind of complaints you hear from Dearborn residents specifically as it relates to rats. Well, you know, anybody who has rats on their property, you know, they call and they want to know because, again, rats aren't just necessarily a problem for one particular person. They travel, they burrow, and so you could have the cleanest property and have no issues, but if your neighbor has a trash problem or your neighbor isn't picking up their dog droppings or your neighbor has a garden that hasn't been kept, you could have rats coming through your property or burrowing on your property. And so, We hear those complaints often about, you know, there's rats in my neighborhood or that dumpster that's behind the fence, which is abutting my residential isn't cleaned. And so we hear the complaints. Now, we're just acting above and beyond what other cities do in our general area. So we're trying to do everything we can to to eliminate them from a city level. Right, which is interesting, I mean, because there are a lot of rats in this area. A couple of years ago, it was declared that Michigan has three of the top rat-infested cities in the country, with Detroit at number nine. 
I'm curious. Yeah, I, I just that. I would just like to get your thoughts. Like, why why do you think that is? Somebody had asked me that question, and I said I didn't want to, you know, speak to what other communities' problems are because you know we don't necessarily have the same problems as Detroit, but I know we do share a border. Um, I would just say that you know we have very dense population areas, and Detroit does have a above ground vector program. They're one of the other cities in Michigan that does have this city employee program where they do vector services. So Detroit is doing their part. We may be discussing how we can work together with this subterranean program. We've talked about reaching out to their vector team, but I don't want to speak to what other city problems other communities have because I'm not involved in the day-to-day with those. Sure. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, one of the, the things that you mentioned is you're using a, a sort of a poison to kill the rats. I understand probably a lot of people are happy about this. I do wonder if there is any way that you're trying to rid the city of rats or keep them out without killing them. Well, we, we are exper- we're exploring and we have one device on shift and we have another one on order. It's called Burrow RX and it's a carbon monoxide based approach instead of a poison based approach. This actually targets their burrows, and it's a carbon monoxide. Basically, it's almost like a uh, it's a device. It, it kind of looks like a like a weed whacker a little bit, and you kind of shoot the carbon monoxide into the burrows, and it kills them in a more humane approach. If you want to, I mean, killing is killing, right? But right. they're taking a little bit more of a non poisonous way of killing them. Um, so we do have one of those machines. And it kills them within, I don't know, like five minutes. Yeah. But of, what I'm hearing is the there's carbon. not yeah, there's not another way to do it. There's no way to keep them out without No, without killing there's them. been some some long term studies about other animals that could hunt or prey on rats, but I think those are longer term solutions and like when people have rats on their property, they don't want to wait a couple of years for study that may be happening with owls or something like that. They want to know, like, hey, if my, do- you know, if I open up my my door and there's a rat there, they just want it gone, you know? Right. People very much do not like rats. I'm also certainly in that category. Um, and my neighbor, I live in Detroit, my neighbor has a bunch of cats coming around because he feeds them. Um, and I think he's successfully kept rats out of his home. Although I still did have a problem with mice and uh, potentially rats and even a gopher get into my crawl space to try to keep warm. Every fall you start hearing the thump, thump, thump in the middle of the night. It does. It drives you a little bit batty. Um, I've used sonic repellent to keep the rodents away from my home. And I think at this point it's worked, but knock on wood. I'm wondering if there are things that you recommend, though, to, to Dearborn residents to keep away rodents and and rats. Yeah, I would uh, just all the property maintenance stuff that we put out about, you know, keeping your firewood off the ground, keeping your grass cut when it's that season, picking up after your garden, picking up after your animals, you know, the same stuff that we always say to people year after year. But also to not, I would inform our residents to not use the stuff that they're seeing at Home Depot or at Lowe's because we're finding that most rats are immune to that type of poison. And again, we would prefer to, we're the ones who are state certified. We'd prefer to provide that service to you and let our experts bait or use the Borough RX program. Renault Arsenault, Code Enforcement Manager for the City of Dearborn. Thank you so much for your time. 
That was Sam Corey, producer for The Metro, speaking with Dearborn's Renault Arsenault about what his city is doing to keep rats out of Dearborn. This is The Metro on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. And Tia, you did mention some events that are happening here for this Valentine's Day, February 14th. One of those is Barkside, Detroit's dog park and bar. Dog park bar. Say that five times fast. Mm. Beer slash wine garden also. It's having a doggy date night. That's happening today from 5 to 8 p.m. You can find or you can have a Valentine's themed cocktail while your dog enjoys a pup cup. They serving booze to the dogs too? Yeah. I don't know. We'll do some more research, but there's also going to be a doggy photo booth so that you can strike a pose with you and your pup. Maybe there'll be some puppy love there, too. All of these photos. My you gosh. know, I'm trying to get into this with you, but you, I don't know, Nick. You're sounding like, you know, I'm forcing this little love for doggies. You, you like dogs? Me? Yeah. No. I didn't. I see. I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Shout out to those who do. Right. Shout out to those who are going to take their dogs to... Parkside and in Detroit to the dog bar, uh, park bar, and, and you know have a good time with the with the with the doggies. Yeah. I mean, I've been to a bar with the dogs before. I see them; they're popping up everywhere in Detroit. Folks love their bars that are dog friendly. Yeah. And you know, it's like man's best friend, yeah. woman's best friend. You have your cuddly little pup. Yeah. Get to get a sip while having your dog out there with you. And of course, the thing that they told me when I was growing up said, "Nick, the dog. It's a great way to start talking." to the ladies. Ladies see your dog and they go, hmm. And man knows I take care of a dog. You know, it's Valentine's Day. You might as well talk about the dogs getting ladies for you. So if you have your pup, take a walk today. It's nice outside. You might find yourself a Valentine or or a potential partner in the near future. You never know, Nick. You never know. Plausible. You never know. We do have a dog park right across from the station as well. You might find your next lover there. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Or don't. Just go there for the dogs and the booze and have a good time with your favorite pup. You've got that option also. Don't feel like you're trapped into anything on this Valentine's Day, the world is your oyster. Speaking of which, oysters also very popular on Valentine's oh, Day. It's, it's funny you say oysters because the next story that we're going to be chatting about is our water. Mm. We're going to be talking about water in the city of Detroit. I thought about oysters, water. Here we go. So that's coming up next on the Metro right here on 1019 WDET. is the Metro on 1019 WDET, your source for daily news, arts, and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And just like we said, we're talking about water. Detroit Board of Water Commissioners was founded and created today in 1853. Excuse me. At that time, very few cities had water systems and Detroit's growing population meant something had to change. Part of Detroit's system was a waterworks park, giving Detroiters a lot more than just water. Detroit Public Television's Anne-Marie Seisland dove into Detroit's Water Disneyland on WDET's Curiosity podcast and answered this listener question. The mysterious waterworks park, just wondering what it was for. Is it functional now? Was it actually a park? That's Barb Williams. Her question is about Detroit's Waterworks Park, located on East Jefferson, just east of Belle Isle. To find the answer, I talked to Dan Austin. He runs HistoricDetroit.org and works for the Detroit Free Press. 
So Waterworks Park started uh, in the 1800s. Very few cities in the United States had waterworks systems. The city waterworks bought some land over on East Jefferson near what is now Cadillac Boulevard, which is where the you know, Waterworks Park still remain. And for the next hundred years or so, that's where the city's water has been pumped to households throughout Detroit. But what's most interesting about this plant is that it offered so much more than water. There were 110 acres of green space with uh, swimming pools and picnic areas and playground equipment. And you could take rowboats through these canals. And it was a real leisurely spot, much like you know, Belle Isle was. And more than that, the park had some serious landmarks, things that became tourist attractions all their own. You first kind of walked into the park, you would pass through the Hurlbut Gate, which still stands. Wait a minute, Hurlbut? Chauncey Hurlbut. Chauncey was a longtime president of the Board of Water Commissioners. Um, he was a grocer, which is how he made his money, but his real love was Waterworks Park. And when he died in 1885, he left his estate to the beautification of Waterworks Park, and, and part of that was to build this massive Hulbert Memorial Gate. Which leads to the park's next big attraction. As you walk down the drive, um, you would come across a clock that was made entirely out of plants, and it was powered off of water pressure because it was Waterworks Park. And then there was the tower, the biggest draw of all, literally. It was a giant tower, 124 feet in the air. It looked kind of like a, like a minaret. It doubled as an observation tower. It was pretty much the tallest thing in town. The tower operated as the world's prettiest pressure equalizer until 1895, which is around the time technology rendered it obsolete. However, it still remained an iconic symbol of Detroit until it was brought down around 1945, after the Buildings and Safety Engineering Department determined it was unsafe and too expensive to repair. But how did it get so run down? Two words, national security. During the First and Second World War, uh, Detroit was the arsenal of democracy. We were certainly a major target for attack from our enemies. So over fear that someone might you know, go into the park and poison the water supply, let's say, uh, the park was closed. And over time, people forgot about Waterworks Park. And there was some public outcry in the early 60s, so a small part of the park was reopened. But after the tower was torn down and the lagoons were filled in, it just wasn't the place it used to be. You know, one by one, all of these things that, that drew people to Waterworks Park were kind of taken away. And eventually the park was taken away. It's kind of become another piece of Detroit's forgotten past. And if it weren't for that Herbert Memorial Gate, I mean, people would be zipping by Jefferson you know, without any indication that there was ever a park there. So, Barb, did that answer your question? Oh, yeah. That's just fascinating. I had no idea um, of the history, and I appreciate your research. That was DPTV's Anna Marie Seisling taking us back in time to Detroit's Waterworks Park. <laughs> she cut it right there, too. You know, That's like, right, man. You got to drop it like it's hot. Listen, <laughs> in DJing, I would remember sometimes, you know, you got like the, the hot out. You just got to like, boom, boom. Gets it. It has that feeling, though, man. Yeah. You can use it right. I'm with it. Um, I'm here for that as well. You are listening to The Metro on 1019 WDET.
This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. As Tia just told you, and I do want to make sure, yesterday was Fat Tuesday. It was Punchki Day. We learned how to properly pronounce Punchki. You know what we also did? Ate a lot of Punchkis. And that was made possible courtesy of Yellow Light Coffee and Donuts over on East Jefferson. They just dropped them by. Very kind, because, you know, in order to do radio, you got to eat. Sugar. Like orders of priority. Sugar. You see? Sugar. Sugar. Pizza. Pizza's good. Coffee's up there, too. Uh, that's I'm mainlining it right now. It's exactly. Me, too. But sugar and those punch keys from yesterday from Yellow Light. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely delicious. The poppy seed with the blueberry, the lemon, yeah. custard. Yeah. It was just, like, fantastic. Yeah. So thanks for that. And thanks to you guys also for listening here, not only yesterday, today. We're going to be here all week, like I mentioned, for the news, uh, arts, and culture that are shaping uh, what we do here in Metro Detroit as you are listening to the Metro. A lot of things going on. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you guys. I want you guys to have a good one, whether you're celebrating romantically or not. And, you know, I think about celebrating and, and romantic vibes, and I think about music, and I think about In the Groove with Ryan Patrick Hooper. What's going on, guys? Um, Are you feeling lovely? Yeah, finally admitting my crush on you two. Oh. Happy Valentine's oh. Day. And today on In the Groove, uh, lots of new music, obviously a lot of lovey-dovey tracks, but the way we're going to do it, I do want to make people cry, so we're going to come right out the <laughs> gate with Cat Power's cover of Sea of Love, but then we're going to go into No Worries' side piece. So it's going to be quite a mix of emotions. Sometimes you got to give something up to commit. Sometimes you got to cry a little bit on the radio. We're going to groove. We're going to move. We're going to flirt. We're going to fall in love today and in the groove coming up at noon on WDET. Going through the wealth of emotions, get your tush- yeah. tissues ready. Tissues, get your all types of things ready. I don't know what to expect, but I'm expecting something. That's right. That's the Metro for Wednesday, February 14th. You can listen to your recent episode online at WDET.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Hmm, the show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Phil Brandt. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I want to say goodbye to Nick. Bye, Tia. <laughs> WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.